Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Madness of March is upon us on episode 204 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I'm not talking about basketball here. I'm talking about late mid-season replacement TV is coming. A lot of books that we've been waiting on are finally out. Going to talk about a couple of big ones this week. And how about this? Timeless fans, it's back clock blockers. That's right. Going to be spoiler-free, though. On the season two premiere of Timeless coming up in this week in Geek Tamin. And our special guest this week, writer Brendan Fletcher and artist Carl Kerschel are going to be on to talk about their new image comic series, Isola, who's which has actually been like 20 years in the making. And it's been what, three years since we had Brendan Fletcher on the show way back and we had him talking about Black Canary. So so much to get to this week. Let's get started. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer David Barnett from Punk's Not Dead, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Get out that long box, that tablet, or the laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and it's been such a big week for book releases this week. It was hard to choose which ones to actually talk about, but this one was easy for me, and it's from Skybound, Oblivion Song, number one, one I've been waiting for for a long, long time, of course, written by Robert Kirkman, Lorenzo De Felice on the art, also the co-creator with Kirkman, Annalise Leone on the colors, and Russ Wooten on the letters. Now, the premise behind this is thousands of people disappeared from Philadelphia into a world of the oblivion, which is filled with monsters and a whole bunch of nasty stuff. Now, there's a character named Nathan who goes to try to bring them back to, I'll say, our world to make it, you know, a present-day world sort of thing. Now, what I love about this book is there there's political intrigue here, and this was a government agency that he was working for at one time. That's the only thing that I will tell you. And there's a very much back-and-forth thing that goes along with this, and then you've got the citizens that are well aware of everything that's happened and everything that's going on and what's being done or not being done, depending on your perspective, from when you're reading this book. And there's a lot of implications here. And one of the things that I loved when I was reading this is because it makes you think it's very much what would you do type of book while you're reading it. And there's also a question of, you know, how altruistic are Nathan's motives in what he's doing? And there's a reason for that, which again, I won't spoil because try and keep these spoiler free. So I'll let you find out what that is. And his girlfriend is involved in this as well, but from a different angle. Again, something else that adds a lot of intrigue into this book. Now, he does have help in what he's doing. That much I can tell you, but it's very little. And there's actually kind of an interesting twist with the doctor that's helping out on this. And I'm not exactly sure how that's going to go in future issues, but there's certainly hints of what might happen. And I'm very interested to see how much of a focus that is on what's going on because, I mean, this is like a hanging-by-a-thread operation here, so I'm not sure what would happen if something goes on with the Doctor. Now, this book does not wait at all, by the way, to give you a big twist. It comes at the end of the issue. I I kind of saw it coming, but I didn't think it was going to be coming this quickly, and 
it, it definitely adds to the question of what's going on in the oblivion as a whole. And that was one of the things that, that struck me at the end of this book was, yes, the oblivion's clearly a terrible place. That's not a spoiler. If you've seen any of the pages from this book or read any of the preview stuff, yeah, it, it's not a good place to be. But at the same time, you're wondering about what's really going on there. And that's the mystery that we don't really know other than the little bit we were shown from Nathan going back there. So very, very interested to see where that goes. This book does have a Walking Dead feel, but comes from a completely different angle. And it's a completely different set of circumstances to me anyway. And this is definitely something that's very different for Kirkman and he's there's a actual there's a letter from Kirkman at the end saying he loves to try new things this is definitely a new thing and there's some sci-fi tech involved here which is very very cool so we get to see that angle as well and you just wonder there's a lot of what would you do type of feelings in this book when I was reading it the art is very very solid throughout especially with the creatures and the action sequences I thought were really really nailed there and the subtle if you look if you're studying the panels closely there's subtle facial expressions and movements from characters that you see as you go that really add on to the story here and and that is something I talk about a lot and I really felt it from this book, especially in a couple panels, but I don't want to spoil them because I want to see if you have the same reaction. This is no surprise. I was really hoping that this would be good. Did not disappoint me at all. So Oblivion Song number one, definitely a pull for me from Skybound. Go out and get that one next time you're at your local comic book shop. Here's one that I decided to pluck out of thin air. It's Highest House number one from IDW Publishing. It's written by Mike Carey. Peter Gross on the art and the letters on this one, and Fabian Alkier on the colors. Now, this follows a magistrate named Extat and a young boy named Moth who gets sold into slavery under his charge, at least for the short term anyway. That's, again, not a spoiler, because that is actually in the preview of the book. And there's a there's a whole part of this book about buying slaves and breaking up families and stuff like that. And and families in an argumental way, doing what they have to do kind of thing. And the middle part of this book, or at least the middle beginning anyway, very uncomfortable, uneasy, very emotional. And you're trying to figure out, you're trying to get a read on this magister and exactly what he's all about and what's going on. And it actually does get explained throughout the books. Like, you know, here's where I come from. Here's where you'll be going. Here's all the circumstances that led up to that. And, it is a little bit confusing because, you know, you're kind of getting a, a backstory from something you feel like has already started and you're already kind of in the middle of it. But it, you, you could definitely get the feeling that this is going to play out and you'll find out more and more as it goes along. And it kind of, I think, to the benefit of the book to do that from the story it seems like that they're telling. And then the highest house itself, which is, of course, what the book is named after, definitely has a creepy vibe once they get there. It actually reminded me of like a medieval Winchester house kind of thing. There's just something odd about this. And, you know, there's plenty of slaves to go around, and and the people in there aren't necessarily eccentric, but it's got a very, I don't know, like a clue vibe. You know, like how everybody's a little bit weird in their own way or a little bit off or a little bit maybe, I don't know, stuck in a loop or something like that. This is just how they live their day-to-day lives, so that it just seems a little bit weird. There's, it's also very clear that there's much more to this boy Moth then then meets the eye and it's not very apparent in the first issue exactly what that is 
there's little bits and pieces of it there. And and again, if this is something you read the preview of this book on the IDW website, it kind of gives a hint to what that's going to be. But we don't exactly know how that's going to play out yet because we don't really see it come to pass in this first issue. Not really, anyway. There's a lot of detail in this book, too, especially on like what Moth's slave job was supposed to be. And some of it seemed kind of unnecessary. I mean, I get it. You're trying to give it a, a realistic and in-depth feel. I just feel like, you know, the, the, those were a couple of pages here and there that could have been spent elsewhere on other things or maybe on more character development or, or something like that. I'm not sure. Or maybe follow the Magister a little bit more. And I, I will say the art, though, very, very good. It give, gives it that medieval feel. And it just gives that mystery to the to the highest house. And, and the Magister as well. I thought that the Magister, one of the most important parts about that character was the art, especially when there's something happens on their journey and it very much calls into question and it freaks Moth out a little bit. And then, of course, the Magister and Moth, he tells them the story of the Highest House and a couple of other things. So it's just it, the, the art very much matters a lot in this book. I'm just not exactly sure where this story is going to go yet. It seems vast and detailed and I'm not sure... This could kind of go either way, and I'm not sold on where it's going to go yet or how the pace is going to be set because I feel like it's a little slow right now in a way, but also in a way I feel like we're getting what we're needing here. So I'm on the fence, so I'm going to give this a pick up for now. I'm going to give this a couple more issues to see where it goes. I definitely think that this book has potential, but I'm not 100% sold on it yet, and I'm hoping in the next couple of issues the direction will become clear and I'll be able to make a final decision. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Time for my spoiler-free review of the Season 2 premiere of Timeless on NBC is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Sean Ryan. And I'm Eric Kripke. And we're the creators of Timeless on NBC, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Gather around clock blockers and time fandits alike because Timeless is back. It has been saved and ready to debut on March the 11th. That's a Sunday on NBC. I got a chance to see the episode early, so I wanted to give my spoiler-free thoughts on it before it airs. Now, I will say this right off the bat. If you were a Timeless fan and you were one of the ones that wanted to see this show saved and were screaming your guts out like I was at the panel at San Diego Comic-Con, you get so much of what you want in this first episode. And that is props to Eric Kripke and Sean Ryan once again giving the fans what they want right off the bat in so many different ways that I just can't tell you about. There's so few things that I can actually say, but I will dance around it this way. Starting off with the team dynamic for Team Timeless, right? So the team dynamic is very, very different. It's hard for me to go into too much detail, but Agent Christopher is there. You still have Wyatt and Rufus and Gia and, you know, everybody's still there. But here's the problem is that then you have Lucy. Remember what happened in the finale? She finds out her mother is a member of Rittenhouse and something happens at the end of the finale. And let me just say this about Lucy. The stuff that goes on with Lucy in this episode, especially if you're a big Lucy fan, it broke my heart. Heart. It was so hard to watch at times, but at the same time, it was so, this, it was such strong stuff. And I wish I could shout it from the rooftops. Well, let me tell you this if you were affected at all 
by these characters. What goes on with Lucy in this season two premiere? Well, it might break you. It's it's really, really difficult because I, you love her so much and you know who she is as a person if you watched the first season and that's what made it so, so hard. And then you've got the rest of the team that is dealing again with the fallout of that as well. And they find out certain realizations from that finale that they did not know before. And if, and one of the major things that happens in the season two premiere, and it happens right away, changes absolutely everything. And there is a time, it's funny that there's a time jump in, in a show called Timeless, but there's something that happens almost directly after the finale. And then we see the end result of that a little bit later on. So, and that very much affects the teen dynamic and why it specifically is also greatly, greatly affected by what happens. And another part of this that I didn't expect to to really be into is what was going on is what's going on with Connor Mason. Connor, there's a very interesting part in this premiere that deals with Connor Mason and his relationship with the team. And I like that they expose that side of the character. And when you watch the premiere, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And it was very, very cool to see him in that state because that was a place where we really didn't see him throughout the first season. And and it maybe it will change your opinion about him. That's all I'm going to say on that. And you remember what happened with Gia in the finale as well? Well, we do get a little bit more on that. I can't tell you that we get a ton of information on what's going on with Gia, but we do know that it is, to, I can tell you right now, it is discussed and it is very much a part of the premiere and Rufus is absolutely 100% aware of it. And yeah, I think that this is something we're going to have to wait throughout the season to slowly get more information on it looks like. But I can also tell you they go back to World War One, and that's where kind of the first Rittenhouse-esque thing goes down. And I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, as far as Rittenhouse goes... There is something that we find out in this episode that absolutely 100% changes the game between Team Timeless and Rittenhouse. That's all I can say, but once you find out what it is, it's one of those amazing moments where you wonder where a show can go after its finale, especially a show like this that was that was pretty much saved from cancellation. You go, okay, so when you come back... Where do you go and how do you make this something that's a threat again? And they absolutely 100% do that without question. And there and there's another huge twist at the end of this episode too, just like the finale where you go, "Are you freaking kidding me?" Actually, that's kind of how I felt in the in the pilot episode where we get that reveal at the end where her sister was gone. You you actually I'm like, "Whoa, are are you kidding me? This is what happens from something so small." This is what happens, again, showing the dangers of time travel. But this really turns the entire show on its ear, both reveals that I'm talking about. And, and again, this is something, I'm trying to be spoiler-free here, this is something you will understand when you watch this episode. And I will say, I was gripped the entire time I was watching this, not just because I'm a huge Timeless fan, but because, guys, this is interesting TV. If Timeless was a show that you were not watching in its original run, You've got to go back and binge watch it. I don't care if you do it on the NBC app, Hulu, whatever. Go back, binge watch the first season, give yourself that chance to watch the season two premiere on Sunday night with fresh eyes after just binge watching the first season because 
I tell you, this is a show that not only you can get hooked on, not just by, if you're a history nerd like I am, love it anyway, especially, there's so many history nerd out moments in the season two premiere in World War One that, that's just so cool, and there's and there's tech from the era and everything, and, and I just loved every second of it, but these characters, there's just something about Wyatt and Rufus and Lucy, just those three alone, there's just something about them. That's so likable. And the chemistry is so 100% there. And it makes you care about them so much that when moments do happen, especially between those characters, it matters so much more. And to me, that is one of the things that makes great TV. That's the argument for This Is Us, right? You love those characters so much. You fall in love with that family dynamic. And that's one of the things that made you want to throw out your crockpot, right? So Timeless, it's the same kind of thing, except you're not throwing out your crockpot. You're thinking, I never want to travel through time ever because this is the kind of stuff that can happen. But, But at the same time, maybe it's necessary. So season two premiere of Timeless Absolutely appointment viewing this season once again, and congratulations to everyone involved for saving the show, or if you helped save the show, or if you were beating the drum at all to bring Timeless back to NBC. Bravo to you, because even just based on this one episode alone, it'll be absolutely 100% worth it, and you're going to see stuff from these characters just in one episode that you probably never thought you would see. That's it for my spoiler-free review of the Timeless Season 2 premiere. Even though I couldn't tell you a whole lot, I'm sorry. Just watch it for yourself. You will love it. Up next, got plenty of nerd news to get to. Let's do it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Victor LaValle, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Let's hop into the closest ship and head to a galaxy far, far away in our TV screens because it's time for nerd news and a story that should surprise no one. Because we've been waiting for this announcement for a while now. A Star Wars TV series has officially been announced. Now, the few details that we do know is that Jon Favreau will be involved in this. Of course, he's done the Iron Man movies. He's going to be doing Jungle Book. And, of course, he's no stranger to Star Wars either because he worked on Clone Wars and everything like that. So, he's going to executive produce and write this new series It will be available on the Disney streaming service. Now, there's no release date. That's all we know. There's no tease as to story or anything. I'm sure that these details will be leaking out as the days and weeks go on. But let's be honest with ourselves here. I could probably sit here for, what, 30 minutes plus rattling off ideas and things I think that this will be and things that they could do or things that they shouldn't do. But it just it almost doesn't matter, does it? Because, first of all, the universe is so vast, it could really be anything. And are we talking about... Skywalker saga is this going to be something brand new and and if it's brand new where does it come from it has to have roots somewhere so my question to you is and if you want to tweet me at down and nerdy 757 tweet the show and give me your ideas what you think this might be or what you want it to be that's fine I will I will love to hear what you have to say but here's my point right now and it actually pains me to say this as a Star Wars nerd for my entire life what story do we feel like we're lacking right now What are we not getting, or what aren't we going to be getting here in the near future in Star Wars movies? And I know that Rebels just ended, and and maybe there's a gap to be filled there on television, but at the same time, we have to, and, and this is a real thing, I mean, superhero fatigue gets talked about, and I think that that's kind of a real thing, and kind of not, because there's a lot of stories that can be told there as well, but... 
how long before we're getting oversaturated with Star Wars? And I think that this is a real problem with Star Wars, especially with movies that a lot of fans have not been 100% on board with. So is that the thing? Are we waiting for somebody to get it right for everyone? Because that's not going to happen. Okay, that's the one thing that we have to... I mean, just because Black Panther was so good and it was so universally loved and Wonder Woman, same thing, doesn't mean that that's a normal thing and that doesn't mean that that can exist in the Star Wars universe because there's so many different stories that you could tell and so many groups of fans that are going to want things generationally that you can't possibly please everyone. So, I mean, what would make you happy in a Star Wars TV series And what is it that we're not getting right now? Because I think when it comes to Star Wars right now, as much as I love the brand, I think we're good. I think we've got a lot of stories. And it doesn't mean you can't go back and watch things that already exist either. That's something we seem to forget. You can go back and watch Rogue One if you love that and that's your go-to. Or you can go back and watch Empire Strikes Back if you love that and that's your go-to. But here's the thing, when you watch those things that you love the most, what is it that you feel like you are not getting beyond that that you need? That is the question we need to ask ask ourselves as fans. I'm not for one second saying I don't want this because I love Star Wars and I will consume almost anything you throw at me that's Star Wars. But at the same time, we need to be very, very careful here because again, as fans of any one particular thing, Once that bubble bursts for the rest of the general public, and yes, we need to know that they matter, it goes away forever, and then we're definitely lacking because it's gone and we can't get it back, or at least we're going to have to wait for a while. So just think about that a little bit. Let's do a little bit of trailer talk now and talk about Legion Season 2, which is trailer dropped this week. We know that it's going to be premiering the second season on April 3rd on FX. Just as weird, just as vibrant, and just as crazy as the first season from this trailer that we've seen. Of course, it is going to cover David's disappearance, of course, that we saw in the finale where he gets sucked into that little ball and taken somewhere. And we do see Oliver and the Shadow King. We see them involved as well in some sort of weird dance number. It's kind of funny and funky. And the main theme here is that the Shadow King, again, looks to be the big bad of the second season. And why not? And they think that the Shadow King is somehow infecting people. And that's where the intrigue of the show comes in. And there is still a focus. One of my favorite parts of Legion was the relationship between Sid and David. Looks like there, again, is going to be a heavy focus on that. And again, we're talking about the whole end of the world as we know it scenario, which is a trope that gets played a lot. But I guess in this weird world, it kind of makes sense because... When you watch Legion, you almost feel like the world could fall apart at any particular second in any particular episode, and it would be just a completely normal thing. Even if you know it's going to run for 10 or 13 or 8 episodes or whatever it might be, you think that at any moment, the shit could hit the fan and the entire season just and the entire world just goes down the tubes. But then you figure they can figure out a way to bring it back as well. But... My thing with this show, and I loved the first season of Legion, it was wonderfully weird, and it was so different, but we've seen that now. And now that we've seen that from Legion, is that going to be enough in a second season of Legion? Or do you crank it up? And at what point is it becoming weird for the sake of being weird? Because a lot of shows that I would describe as weird and fans describe as weird, it wears thin after a while if that's what you're doing just to get attention kind of thing, right? So... Will this be the same kind of weird, a different kind of weird? Will that wear thin? I think that's a big question 
coming into Legion Season 2. I'm really, really looking forward to see how they expand on what they did in the finale, and I certainly think that there's things that they could do. I just hope that they don't ramp the weird up to the point where it doesn't make sense anymore and you're being weird for the sake of being weird because that's one of my biggest pet peeves in movies and TV. If you're going to be weird just for the sake of being weird, what you're trying to, what you're telling me is, is, you, is that you don't really have a story. And the season one story for Legion was so good and all the weirdness made sense. I just hope that they can carry that over into season two. Again, just one trailer, but it'll be very, very interesting to see what angle they decide to take. And really quickly, just because there wasn't a whole lot of information in the 30-second teaser that they released, Luke Cage Season 2 coming to Netflix on June the 22nd, and it looks very much like, once again, Luke Cage is going to be fighting for and protecting Harlem. I am all in on Luke Cage, just like I was for the first season. And again, there are loose ends to tie up in Luke Cage Season 2. And again, more things that we need to know with Misty Knight and a lot of the other characters in that world. So we're not done If anything, Luke Cage Season 1 was about as open-ended as you get in a Netflix series. So, I mean, Jessica Jones as well, which, again, is spectacular, and hopefully you're binging that right now after you get done listening to the show. But this is something that I've really looked forward to. I think it it has, again, been a gold standard for a Netflix TV series. I would, again, put it below Jessica Jones, though. I think Jessica Jones has been so spectacular, but, I mean, it's neck and neck. And when are we going to see Jessica and Luke cross paths again we saw what happened in the defenders we know the history of the comics is that something that's going to be focused on in these series i guess we'll have to wait and see now here's something that was very very interesting and it regards sony's playstation possibly getting backwards compatibility the story broke from playstation universe and it was a report on the update of a patent that was from 2015 that specifically states and i quote Backwards compatibility testing of software in a mode that disrupts timing. Okay, now think about this. And the report also states that it would only be PS4 games that are backwards compatible. Now, you know that whatever Sony calls their next console, it's going to be ramped up to the nth degree. It's going to have future in mind, not present. So whenever it does come out... It will be looking forward to potential future technology while also taking advantage of what we have in front of us at whenever the release date that is. But the whole the the stick of the stick in the craw to a lot of fans is the whole disrupt timing thing. So could this be a frames per second issue? Think about that. When you're doing backwards compatibility and you're going backwards, right? Like think when Blu-ray players came out, there was the whole thing with DVDs and how would DVDs play on Blu-ray players so they upscale the DVDs so they look a little bit better on Blu-ray, but they're still DVDs, and Blu-rays are always going to look better. So could a disrupt timing thing be a frames-per-second issue where you're talking about games running at a certain frame-per-second rate, and you know that the frames-per-second on this new console is going to be absolutely ridiculous? So is that what we're talking about here? Talking about maybe a 4K technology or maybe even a new technology that we're not even aware of yet or that's in the very beginning stages? Are we talking about going from there and ramping this down to even in HD quality, not even a 4K quality, to be backwards compatible. Here's the interesting thing, though, is that Sony has never been interested in backwards compatibility before. I mean, for a long time, they've actually said that fans want it a whole lot, but they just don't use it. And would it only be PS4 games, and is that enough for you? I think at this juncture, it kind of has to be, right? Maybe you'll be able to buy other games digitally only. I don't know. 
and I don't know how similar this would be to Xbox's compatibility and can you use the discs or not. That's another thing that we need to find out. But is this something you want as a PlayStation fan? Seriously, if you sit down and really think about it, do you really want or do you really need backwards compatibility? I understand the whole reason for not doing it because you want people to have to buy new games when they buy a new console and let the money train just kind of circle around. But wouldn't it be nice... If you could play a few of your older games while you're trying to afford a new game, because I can tell you right now, video games are only going to get more expensive. DLC or not, pay for play or not, I mean, whatever you want to call it, things are just going to get more expensive. Games are going to go up, not down. And it would be nice to be able to play a couple of more games on a new console than I'm already used to playing. So I think that this could be something very, very important for Sony to do, actually. And maybe this is a sign that... They feel like Microsoft's starting to close the gap a little bit. Or is this something that they can do that the Switch isn't doing? There's no backwards compatibility on the Switch either. I'm not saying that there's a whole lot of reason to have that. But what I'm saying is, is you bring that to the table and suddenly maybe Sony feels like for the first time, and I can't even think of how long, maybe for the first time they feel like they actually need to compete now because they've been so far ahead. And this is one thing they're looking at to maybe grease the wheels a little bit and be able to say, well, yeah, we have that too. So there goes their advantage over us, how small it might be. So think about if that's something that you might actually want from a new PlayStation console. But, I mean, as far as the comics world's going on right now, the last story, I feel like the wheels are coming off a little bit here. I mean, you have Hunter Gorenson, who's going to be exiting as marketing VP for Valiant Entertainment. We heard about that earlier in the week. But the big news really seems to be coming from IDW and a couple of very, very big exits, actually. First of all, PR guy Steven Scott is going to be exiting the company, and I wish him the best. One of my favorite guys in the business, bar none, love Steven Scott. Here's another one, though, that really, really shocked me. Chris Ryall, IDW's editor-in-chief, is going to be exiting after 13 years. This, of course, first broke on the beat, and then Ryall confirmed it on Twitter, now, much of what IDW has become can be credited to Ryall. I mean, all the amazing stories that have come out over the years. And again, I don't want to list any because I don't want to leave it. This is one of those things where it's like an Oscar acceptance speech. You worry about how many people you want to list out because you know you're going to forget somebody and have to tweet it out later. So I'm not going to start rolling down all these series. But think about it. The deals with Hasbro that happened. All of these now books that became TV series like Winona Earp and stuff like that. And the future of IDW in movies being adapted and now imprints coming like It's Alive and Black Crown. So much going on IDW right now. And you turn around and look and you say, hey, if Chris Ryle wasn't there, this stuff might not have happened for them. So the other thing I worry about is, is that all this change for IDW is coming at a very very critical point for them. I mean, you've got an expanded Hasbro universe that they're working on right now, the imprints that I mentioned, and venturing out into different things and trying to, at the same time, by the way, tell different stories and create different things that the readers are going to love, not just now, but in the future for their own creator-owned stuff, which is going to be very, very important for IDW. So all of this turmoil Cannot help. And I know that the reason that there's been some changes at Valiant is because of that DMG acquisitions. That makes total sense. I'm starting to wonder, are there going to be rumblings now of some sort of buyout of IDW? I have no knowledge on this at all, by the way. I'm just trying to figure out what's going on here. 
with IDW? Or is there a grand plan in place? And why would these two guys decide to leave? I know why Stephen Scott is leaving. I don't want to say it on the air because that's his business to tell, not mine. So I'm going to kind of leave that out. But Stephen has told me in private. But I don't, I'm no, I'm not exactly sure why Ryle is leaving. Going to try and find that out for you as well. But it just seems odd timing to me that with so many great things going on at IDW and so many things that are expanding for them, that all of a sudden now they have turmoil in two pretty big spots. So I'm going to be watching out for any more changes in IDW. And I hope this doesn't derail what looks like a bright future for them in the in the now, not just in the future. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, going to be talking about a new Image comic series, Isola, with Brendan Fletcher and Carl Kershaw. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is comic book writer Steve Orlando, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, in case you haven't noticed, there's a pretty cool fantasy book coming out called Isola, and written by this guy right here, Brendan Fletcher, and drawn by the great Carl Kershaw. Gentlemen, how's it going? Going well. How are you doing? Really well. (laughs) Doing great. I mean, as a matter of fact, if you look at the description for this book on the Image website, it says that Isola has been 20 years in the making. So what made it finally all come come together? (laughs) Oh boy, that's a long, that's a twenty-year story. It's actually, it's actually longer than a twenty-year story. We've known each other for thirty years. Thirty-four um, years. Thirty-four years. Like yeah, we we met in grade six. Um, we were nineteen eighty-four. Yeah, we were I think um, nine or ten years old, maybe. And um, and we did a ton of drawing and making stuff up and shared a love of different cartoons. And then as we got a little bit older, I think in high school, we started. Uh, skipping school and going to the comic store a lot and then making up our own stories. And, um, and one of the stories we, we, uh, we were working on for a few years um, was called Miki. And it was a sort of a fantasy adventure thing. And it had a bunch of, um, we, we did a ton of work on it, but it, it, it got caught up in, um, what would you, how would you phrase it? Life. Yeah, it I was, guess. It was life. I mean, we, we, we didn't know how to, do anything like we were just coming from being a bunch of kids who liked drawing and storytelling and wanted to maybe go into making comics or, or at least just make one comic for ourselves and in that time you know we were in university and uh carl started getting noticed for his art and he took on jobs from uh indie comics and then started doing some work for marvel and uh i started getting uh more like pro acting and singing jobs and um man like life just got in the way so doing our own book was um something that was happening behind the scenes while we were working on these other projects and uh it took a little while to get up to speed and then we when we finally got to a place where we thought we knew what we were doing we would and this happened a couple times you know we we would uh someone else would throw a, a monkey wrench into the machine and and it would totally blow up on us and we'd have to kind of restart or, or uh, adjust how we were approaching it. And after the, I don't know, third time we did that or second time we did that, um, we just kind of ran out of steam on it. And I think we decided we needed some distance. That was, I mean, that was like seven years, Carl. I think from the time we were like 20 to maybe 27 or something, 28. Yeah, on and off. And um, the thing is, Miki was almost, it was close to being picked up by Image and by Dark Horse and by a few different places. 
and it just never happened because of the different changes we had to make. We had we kept going back and forth on different things. So Isola is it's twenty years in the making, but it's not it's not um, you know those twenty years were we were working on a lot of stuff, and a lot of the stuff that we were working on found its way into this story. It was uh, I mean Miki was really special to us and even when we go back and and look at the work we did back then it actually it holds up the script is pretty good and carl's artwork is fantastic Mm -hmm. Uh, i don't know if any of this stuff is going to see the light of day as it was created but you know there's character stuff that we uh character work that we we did there that uh, really bled into gotham academy Uh, i think the characters of olive and maps are essentially younger versions of the two main characters in in uh Miki. And I think the work that we're doing now on Isola, uh, really, it, it all has its origin in, in the, you know, almost decade worth of solid work we put into Miki. It's not a one to one, of course, we're not just copying what we did, but we wouldn't be we wouldn't have this project in the state that it is without having done all the legwork on on Miki years earlier. And I, I, I wanted to clarify, I wanted to jump in uh, right at the beginning. There's no division in in duty the the way it's kind of set out in credits and, and stuff like I, I mean clearly i'm not drawing any of this book but carl is writing uh it, you know carl is uh as much if not more the writer of this this series than me and uh and on the art side i mean the the lush colors uh for the most part come from our uh partner michelle uh, Sarasa Corner goes by the name M. Sassy K. She worked with us on Gotham Academy. She did the beautiful background paintings um, and later uh, all the color work. Um, but she's really been instrumental in in helping to find the the look of the series. So it's really it's uh, it's really a, a group project in that way. It's funny, I just that, wanted to say, yeah, that I'm actually lead, that actually leads into my next question, actually, because. I mean, turning the focus to Carl, because every page is just amazing in this book, and he's actually, like you said, listed as a storyteller, not an Mm -hmm. artist in the credits, which readers will actually find out is very appropriate when you pick up the book. So what is it like as an artist, and Brendan, for you as a writer, to know that you can just have pages in this book with no dialogue, which there are quite a few, and have them make such an impact like that? Um, It's it's something we always did. So it's, I, I think... It's a difficult thing to do when you're working for other publishers, like on other people's characters. Like if you're trying to tell a Gotham Academy story in 20 pages, um, you don't really have the luxury of doing that. But but as long as we've been telling stories, we've been influenced by um, quieter films and and a lot of um, subtle character acting. And so now that when we started our own image book, we thought we would um, be as indulgent as possible with, um, you know, just kind of double down on the stuff that we like. And that, that involves a lot of silent panels. Um, I, I think it, it's a horrible thing to say, uh, and I should never admit this, um, as I'm now a professional writer, um, but I don't have a great love of words <laughs> relative <laughs> to my love of imagery. So when I'm writing something, uh, when I'm typing out the story, I'm actually just describing in words what I want to see. And I care less about what people are saying and what words are on the, the page than I do about how the how the um, people feel about each other and what what the scene is like and what the atmosphere and tone is. I want it to be 
I, it's why it's why working with Carl is so amazing because he's got the ability to bring that acting out in the characters without having them without the necessity of them saying something mm. to to relay information to uh, the reader. You can see it on their faces. You understand what what they want, what they're going through as characters, and I find that that's playing to one of the greatest strengths of our medium. It's a visual medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the more, I, I feel like the more we play to that strength, the more effective our, our storytelling can be. And that's not to say we don't want to use all of the tools because words are definitely, um, you know, a, a great part of the tool set and they, um, they have a unique power. Uh, and it, it, I think it's just one that we want to use more sparingly and, and carefully than we do in something like Gotham Academy, which is a, a YA tone and and that actually benefits from having things like um, uh, first-person narration that makes it feel like, you know, it almost makes it feel like you're uh, reading the diary of this the, uh, young Olive Silverlock right. uh, sent away to this boarding school in Gotham City. It, it actually helps the tone. It's a t- totally different beast. I, I agree. but and But the funny thing about that is that um, a lot of that stuff is what what Becky brought to it. You know, if, yeah. if we had been left to our own devices on Gotham Academy, <laughs> it would have been a much a much quieter, melancholy experience. Mark uh, Mark Doyle, our our editor uh, and the the gentleman who was the editor of all the Bat books at the time, um, now I think Vertigo editor at, at DC is um, he actually sent a note. Uh, I don't know if you remember, Carl, but sent a note right at the beginning saying that he wanted that first-person narration. Or maybe Becky had sent a note saying that she wanted to do that, and Mark was like, oh, yes, it's no question. Like, I wouldn't have let this book happen without first-person narration. So yeah. I think we would. <laughs> we they were both right. I mean, it. they were both right in that case, I think. Yeah. Now let's dive into the characters for a second, because one of the things I love about your main character, Captain Rook, is her strength, but also there's a hint of vulnerability there as well. So how would you kind of describe her to would-be readers? Uh, she is a young woman who should not, you know, for all the, the rules of the, the kingdom of Mar, have the job that she has currently as, as the captain of the guard. Um, she's rough. She's not trained for this. Um, She's maybe even considered too young for that job. Uh, she's she's just highly unqualified. And uh, I don't know if you had a chance to read the prologue, uh, the sh- the short prologue. That I did, we, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we did this little prologue that ran in the back of uh, my Motor Crush series for the first five issues. And it gives a little insight into who Rook was before she came back to the kingdom and... and uh, was sort of gifted this uh, position as captain of the guard. And, and that was her in her element, uh, you know, outside running rough with a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, seemingly uh, ne'er-do-well hunters. And, and yeah, you know, she's basically a cop. She's a street cop. And, and she's been given the job of, of being like a secret service <laughs> agent. <laughs> Maybe she's not so great at it. So she's um, making mistakes and um, fumbling around. She struggles uh, a lot with protocol and formalities. And I think she's she's a bit of a country bumpkin at heart. That actually describes it really well, because I would have said she's, she's feisty but untrained was how, kind of how I came off with it. She's trained in combat, 
and she's trained in the job that she had before, which was uh, she was essentially a, a border guard. I mean, we're we call them uh, her particular type of guard is is called the circle guard. The border around the kingdom is a, a circle in shape, mm-hmm. and um, she was, uh, you know, she was essentially a glorified border guard that has to make sure everybody's papers are in check and make sure that imports and exports are up to snuff and uh it could be a boring job but there could also be excitement and she could certainly handle herself uh she's trained in a lot of weapons uh but she doesn't know the formal ways of acting within the um you know within the kingdom within the queen's presence with uh you know the other uh the other staff that the queen has around her she just doesn't fit in there and this is something you'll see a little bit of uh, later in the series. I mean, we, we hint at it, uh, and you certainly get a, a, I think you certainly get the suggestion that that's going to be the case for her but it, at the end of that prologue. Um, but we do dive into it a little more uh, as we move forward through the series. That's good to hear. We're talking to Brendan Fletcher and Carl Kershaw of Isola Number 1, of course, going to be available at your local shops and digital retailers on April the 4th. Now, guys, world building is just so important in fantasy adventure stories, but it's also hard to do something that kind of hasn't been done before or feels too familiar, but I feel like your book does that. So how would you say you've tried to avoid that or leading to certain tropes? Oh, boy. Um, well, I'm glad you feel that way. It's a, it's a difficult thing to balance because there's um, there are so many influences, but I think... Um, we kind of, I think what this has in its favor is that it's, the world building is, is focused less on civilizations and uh, cultures as it is on flora and fauna. So um, I spend a lot of time moving the characters through different, um, different types of environments. And I think those environments um, give each issue its own flavor you know like there's there's political stuff going on in the background and it's all unique to this world but it's so tied to the um, the wildlife that i think it it gives it a bit of a different flavor yeah and i think i i think that as much as carl and i um build the world out by talking to each other or sending notes or script writing uh, there's a lot of it that just happens on, on the, you know, quote unquote drawing board, uh, the, the drawing tablet, uh, Carl just does amazing design work and creates, uh, wonderful creatures and landscapes. And, um, a lot of the time we're, he just makes stuff up and then we figure out what that is and how it works into the story. I mean, I've got to believe that that's how it worked a lot of the time in things like star Wars, where you have an amazing, collection of um you know creatives drawing tons of pictures of creatures and landscapes and ships and things every day and and uh, eventually uh, people like george lucas would wander through the creature shop and just go whoa i like this i don't have a place for it yet but i'll put it somewhere and then that character gets a name and a backstory and mm-hmm. eventually an action figure and it it starts building the world out um yeah from all there. that stuff inspires other ideas and characters in, in fact even just I had to. I was creating a map of the world to use on the covers, and even just figuring out the the geography uh, and sort of plotting a loose course for the characters. Um, I mean, that suggests a hundred different story ideas and um, and world ideas and locations as well. So it's it's always evolving. I mean, we have a we have a rich 
mythology we're we're working from, and that kind of evolves on its own as well. But but um, but all this stuff is kind of motivated by that mythology. So um, hopefully it'll feel cohesive in some way. It's funny you mentioned the map because Isola itself, as you're reading the book, you find out that it's kind of, the island's kind of considered a myth. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this is a destination that Rook and her queen won't actually reach anytime soon. So how do you keep readers interested in a place that they haven't seen? And how do you keep the mystery of whether it will ever be seen at all? How do we answer this, Carl, without giving away? (laughs) Ah, the challenges that I bring Mm -hmm. forth to you, gentlemen. You'll get answers and you'll get Huh, let's see. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm not trying to answer either, except that, to, to, except to say that so much of so much of the story we're telling and and the characters that Rook and Olwyn meet and their situations point back to Isola. Like, there's a constant there's constant reference to it from people who either believe in it strongly or don't believe in it at all. So much of the culture is based on the the mythology of this place. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what else to say about it. it, it I, just... I, I would say this, Carl. I would say to James, we got this. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> hey, I have complete faith in you guys. I mean, from reading the first issue, I have faith. I'm locked in. So either way, whether you see it or not, I'm good. <laughs> well, I think what's important, what's really important here is that Rook believes in it with all her heart. Yes. And, and yes. if she does, then hopefully... The reader will be along for that, too. Well, well one said. Of the thing, one of the things I love in talking to you guys, I mean, it's clear that you guys have known each other for a while. So I'm sure that you kind of had a debate or two over the years. So what would you guys say has been your biggest debate when it comes to comics over the years, whether it be a greatest story or greatest artist for a certain character or something like that? Oh, boy. Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, we're talking 30 <laughs> years of history here. Let, so let, let me throw this one out. I think it might be that, uh, and, and, you know, my opinions, let me just say, my opinions have probably changed over the years, but I think it may have been my assertion 34 years ago or 33-ish years ago that perhaps Darkseid was the greatest character ever created by anyone in comics. (laughs) I I was going to go even nerdier than that and say that your your favorite depiction of dark side differs from mine. <laughs> okay. That's, that's deep. That is very and deep. I, I just, to, just to make sure we're on the same page about what my favorite depiction was. <laughs> it was, it was the, uh, X-Men Teen Titans crossover with the, the Walt Simonson art, specifically the drawing on the back cover. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's, that, that's pretty, I did not, I got to tell you, and all the answers I thought you guys gave, I, ne- I never thought it would be dark side. That not in a million years. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I also like think we 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 got into it a bit over um, Jim Aparo's Batman, which I think is amazing, and you were you were not as hot on. Well, I think the thing is, I was collecting those last number of years of of Aparo Batman issues when you know he just it wasn't at the top of his game, and and I think I recognized that as I was reading them, like. You know, no hard feelings. Clearly, this isn't, you know, your best work, but I'm just not loving it as a result. But I can also appreciate, and I think I've said this to you before, I can also appreciate Aparo at the height of his powers. And I 
I wouldn't agree that he was the best Batman artist, but I do I do really like what he did at the height of his powers. I think I liked Marshall Rogers stuff better mm. back then. I mean, there's been um, so many good ones, so I mean, it's hard to be you know the best ever kind of thing, you know. Well, that whole like '70s era of Batman is I, obviously. I mean, that's what I was reading when I was uh, little. That's um, kind of like my Batman, the Denny O'Neill, Marshall Rogers, Jim Aparo, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez uh, style Batman is like that's my my jam. Or I would even say Alex Toth, you know, the Super Friends design. Yes. Yeah. It's just, I think it's an age nostalgia thing. That was how how I grew up, what I, I think what we grew up looking at. And um, I, I think maybe just our, our specific, you're looking specifically at Aparo and I would probably go to Neil Adams, maybe. Can we just agree that Jose Garcia... Luis Lopez drew the best super uh, friends, the best. Yeah, I was going to say the best DC comics. Yeah. Heroes. Yeah. Let's <laughs> yeah, let's do that. I, I can go with that. I'm, I'm comfortable saying that I, I'll, I'll go in there with you on that. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen his dark side, but I would be totally into checking that out. <laughs> I wonder if he did it. He might've done dark side art for the superpowers toys. Yes, he may have. I'm, it could have been somebody else though. I don't know if he did all the, like, because I, I have a feeling for that superpower stuff, they used his art from the uh, the style guide book. I would think so. Yeah. Um, but some of it had to be, like, custom artwork, because you're not going to find Cyclonus <laughs> in there. Is that his name? Cyclonus? Uh, uh, wait, no. Cyclonus was... I want to Google it so badly, but if I start banging away on my keyboard, it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna come through the microphone. Yeah, we, we've definitely gone a, we've definitely gone down a rabbit hole here for sure, for sure. Well, but you're, but you're in my wheelhouse, so I'm 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 good with it. Oh, Cyclotron! <laughs> oh boy, no Garcia Lopez Cyclotron in the style guide or Golden Pharaoh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I I had that one. I don't know why, Me but too. I had that one. I'm only missing. I, I'm only missing one superpowers figure. To this day, I still never got cyborg. Really? Yeah. Wow. Ooh, tough to find. Well, if anybody's looking looking for a Brennan at a con, <laughs> I mean, we need a cyborg figure. Superpowers. What's the deal here? Oh boy. Yeah. It's. I, I got rid of a lot of my toys a few years back, but um, have not been able to let go of my superpowers collection. Uh, for any of your listeners, if they didn't know, I'm in New York, and this is... That's the, the soundtrack of New York, is what that it is. is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, well, I'm gonna, I'm, let's get back to Isola here for a second. Now, there's no spoilers here. We've been doing a pretty good job of that so far, I think. But I will say that there's one particular page in the book where there's, like, a ton of animals on the page. And I've heard from artists before that they hate drawing horses. <laughs> So, so Carl, yeah. what was it like to have to illustrate what seemed like fifty four-legged animals in one page? That well, I mean, like it's—I I don't think you could say that I had to do it. I mean, just like I, I brought that on myself. Um, I like drawing animals a lot, like more than drawing people. So I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I did for seven years. Every week, I did a web comic called "The Abominable Charles Christopher," and it's just about a bunch of—it's about a Sasquatch a silent Sasquatch and a whole bunch of talking animals. And it's still on all, um, 
all online for free at abominable.cc so you can go read it nice but um yeah i just like um i just always like drawing animals and i i was i started inserting different animals into comics i was doing at dc um just because it was entertaining me and some of that stuff would get cut and then i and then um i did the web comic and then isola actually was born out of a, a desire to to marry the kind of um, adventure superhero comics I was I'd been doing for 20 years with the um, with the stuff I liked so much about the web comics. So that's why it's a, a very animal heavy um, Miyazaki type of of uh, story. But um, yeah, drawing horses is tough. Uh, I still do it, but um, but in this case. Uh, I have the luxury of being able to make stuff up. So while there are some kind of real world animals in this book, there are a lot of animals that are mostly real world, but have, you know, different kinds of um, features. Like the horses have sort of like thicker kind of lizardy tails, which is also a holdover mm. from Miki. And so, yeah, they're different. I mean, I, I don't have to be exacting about it. I mean, the, the anatomy is not super precise, except for the tiger, which is pretty spot on a tiger, except for, the coloring of it. So I don't mind it at all. I mean, it's, it's, it sucks to draw a crowd of anything, but, oh, yeah. uh, but I'd rather do a crowd of animals, I think, than a crowd of people standing around police cars and fire engines, which is what you get in every other superhero book. Well, this is de- definitely not every other book. Isola, number one, is going to be available at local comic book shops and digital retailers on April the 4th. Just a note to readers and retailers as well, the final order cutoff date is Monday, March the 12th. So you're definitely going to want to get in on that and pre-order this book because it is good stuff. Brendan Fletcher and Carl Kershaw, thanks so much for joining me this week, guys. Thanks Thanks. for having us. Such a great time chatting with Brendan Fletcher and Carl Kershaw about Isola. And i got to tell you, this is one of those fantasy books. It hits the ground running right away. There are no lost moments in this first issue. There's not a whole lot that, you know, as far as backstory, they don't focus on that a ton. You just get right into the story. And I love that they did that in this book. This is definitely one that you're going to want to add to your pull box. Of course, final order cutoff, Monday, March the 12th. And it will hit local shops and digital retailers on April the 4th. So either way, make sure you're picking up Isola number one. You will not be sorry about that for sure. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Brendan Fletcher and Carl Kershaw and everyone over at Image Comics for setting this up. You want to find out more about how you can get your hands on Easily, you can always go to downandnerdypodcast.com. I'll post links up there. As a matter of fact, always follow us on social media as well, facebook.com slash downandnerdy and at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.